Hello, this is Jessica Stewart, and you're listening to the My Modern Met Top Artist Podcast. We're so excited to be back for season two. For the next 20 episodes, myself and my fellow hosts, Sarah Barnes and Samantha Pierce, will be speaking with artists who are making an impact through their art. We have an incredible lineup in the works, and to kick things off, we're speaking with iconic street photographer Jamel Shabazz. Jamel spent the better part of the 1980s documenting life in New York City. In fact, you may recognize some of his most famous images as immortalizing the rise of the hip hop movement. His photographs, which heavily focus on black communities in Brooklyn, crystallize a magical moment in time where fashion, music, friendship, and family came together. And they show the city in a time of innocence prior to the crack epidemic and the AIDS crisis. We are thrilled to have him on the show to discuss his wide-ranging career and to get insight into how he used his photography to engage with his community. We'll also hear from you, our listeners, and our new Ask the Artist segment. We've been asking you to submit questions to the artists we're interviewing. In each episode, we'll be asking them what you'd like to know. If you want to get involved, follow us on Instagram at Top Artist Podcast or subscribe to our newsletter over on podcast.mymodernmet.com where we make announcements about who we're interviewing and when. All right, let's get to it and dive into our conversation with Jamel Shabazz. We're here today with Jamel Shabazz. Very excited to have you here with us. Welcome, Jamel. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. I have so much that I want to talk to you about. You have had such a great and long career, Um, but I want to sort of Start by talking about your origins. I know that your father was into photography and, and worked uh, as a photographer himself with the military. Is that what sparked your love of photography or was it something else? I would say it was my father. You know, having grown up in an environment where there were a lot of photography books, he had a, a, a vast library and was filled with photography books. So as a young child, I would always go there. And also, you know, the family, it was a tradition back then. And it's kind of like fading away now that the family photo albums were passed on from generation to generation. So my father took great pride in fashioning these albums on our coffee table. So I, was, I had an opportunity not only to see photographs, uh, develop a love for photographs in general, but now I had an, an idea of, of the power of photographs in terms of the, the visual history of the family. So that's something that always amazed me. So I just grew up in that environment of just the, the, the uh, photography, you know, not only through his publications, but, but books. And he always came home with magazines like every week. So it was a treat for me. So early on, you know, that, that appreciation for not only photography, but photographers came to me. And I was about maybe eight, nine years old. And of course, this was during the Vietnam War, where images were everything. So you had the war in Vietnam going on. You had the civil rights movement. And I had a very curious mind. So it, it was through my father's uh, introduction to just having the publications around the house that really fueled my curiosity. I want to talk a little bit about New York and Brooklyn in particular, because that obviously is the centerpiece of your photography. So you grew up in Brooklyn, in Red Hook, but you left in the military in the late 70s when you were just 17 and you went abroad. So can you talk a little bit about what your community was like growing up and then how you had found it changed when you came back? That's, that's a really great question. I, I grew up during the 1960s. At that time, Red Hook was a, a really beautiful community. We had an Olympic-sized stadium. We had an Olympic-sized pool. We had beautiful parks. We had a, a large bakery right within the heart of the city that made pastries throughout the, the whole of Brooklyn. So the, product, the community itself had a fresh scent on any given day of cinnamon, nutmeg, and, and vanilla. And that was a really beautiful thing that I, I, I remember so vividly. Uh, there was a canal called the Gowanus Canal, which wasn't too far from where I lived at. And that served as a gateway to a larger world. 
So growing up, you know, it was it was very rich, you know, and, and it was community. You know, everyone had a mother and father. If you didn't, by t- more than likely, your father died in the war. But it was a community. The elders looked out for the young people. The young people respected the elders. And it was just a, a really good community. It was a mix between black, Latino, and, and Italian. And it was just a, a pretty good time for us. It was a time, I, I consider it a time of innocence. Uh, my family left that area when I was about 12, and we moved out to the East Flatbush section of Brooklyn. Because what Red Hook was, for the most part, it was a stepping stone for a larger world. You know, many of our, my, our parents came from the South due to the Great Migration. So it was just a, 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 a basic base for the time being. But most people aspired to move out and get private homes. So when I was about 12, we moved out to East Flatbush, and my family purchased a home. At the age of 16, my, my parents were going through a divorce when I was 16 years old. So I had to put my photography down, and I didn't want to be a burden on them. So I decided at 16 that I needed to get away. So me and my friend, we decided to join the, the military. So at 16 years old, I told my mother that I need to get away, you know, because I didn't just I didn't want to be a burden to you. My father disagreed with it because him being a veteran and seeing the impact that the Vietnam War had and the Korean War had on so many people, he refused to sign me. But my mother signed me on my 17th birthday. My mother signed me. And, um, you know, once I finished my basic training and, and, and uh, advanced training, you know, I went over to Germany for a while. So I was spending three years in Germany. And that was a great experience in my life because it allowed me to get away from America, learn different cultures, connect with different people, and at the same time, develop myself. You know, I returned home during the summer of 1980, and it was a very troubling time. You know, I came home to a lot of conflict, and it surprised me. I don't know what had happened in that short time in which I was gone, but it appeared that a lot of young men were dying at the hands of other young men. So when I returned back to, to my community in Red Hook, you know, I, I, I sensed this dark cloud was hanging on the community. And I felt now as, as an older person, I had a responsibility to be a light and to try to engage young people because I understood the difficulties of growing up young and knowing the, the, the impact that divorce can have and peer pressure. So I went back trying to just talk to young people. But what was happening at that time, too, the AIDS epidemic had came into existence. And then a, a couple of years later, the crack epidemic hit. And both those epidemics really impacted the community really hard. And I worked with great determination to just try to... to, to uh, to be a light to young men and women out there. So when I went back, it was a, it was a very changed community from what I from what I once knew. I can imagine that must have been very shocking. You know, like you said, it's such a short time, and you come back, and it sounds like it almost seems sort of unrecognizable. Is that what inspired you to say, okay, I need to pick the camera back up and document what is going on here? It's a combination of things. You know, prior to going into the military, I was just playing around with photography. My mother had a basic uh, 110 Instamatic camera, which I picked up at 15 years old and just started using it. And I've, I've developed a love for photography at that point. It was just, just, just a fun thing. But now when I return back to the States, I have a 35 millimeter camera. And now my father is instructing me in the science of photography and he's put me on assignment. So initially, I started out just wanting to just make beautiful images. But then I realized that the camera had a magnetic attraction to it, and it gave me a voice now to connect with people, not only photograph them, but I was concerned about the violence that was going on in the community. I was concerned about young people's goals and aspirations. So I used it as a magnet to draw people in and have conversations. For me, the conversations were more important than the photographs. The photographs later on become evidence of the conversations. But I needed to talk to people, and I found that the, 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 it was something powerful about this language of photography that drew people in. As I started to advance, I would carry a portfolio with me of images, 
And I took great delight in sharing the photographs with young people and just showing them their beauty. And, um, and then it just started conversations. And as time would go on and as the crack epidemic hit, I needed to be more proactive in the street now because I realized that I had a very important voice. And, uh, and I came home a changed man from the military. My diet has changed. My music has changed. Uh, I started to play chess. And I had a genuine concern with young people. So everything that I knew, I wanted to impart to them. And many of the people I photographed, I didn't know. I just placed myself in locations where young people would be at. And it was almost like being a fisherman. I would just go out there fishing for young people <laughs> to talk to. And I was at the same time, I was learning about what was going on in the community. And, and uh, the great artist Marvin Gaye has a song that reminds me of my journey. And it plays it played in my in my head often on my Walkman when I was traveling. And it's called What's Happening, Brother? And it's asking a question about what's happening. You know, I've been going for a while and what's been going on. So I really wanted to get to gauge young people about what was going on during my absence, in addition to what was going on, you know, in, in real time. Well, I think you can certainly see it in your work, the need not only to take a beautiful image, but to really connect with people. And one thing that struck me, because we have a lot of street photography, a lot of great street photography that comes out of New York in the 70s and 80s. I think of Martha Cooper, Bruce Davidson. There are many, many others. Um but yours really stands out to me because of the way you engage with the subjects. It's we're not talking about voyeuristic, candid images taken from you know a distance. You can see that you're up close and personal with them. They're really engaging with you and, and the camera. And you sort of spoke about why you were you were trying to do that. Do you feel like being part of that community, but then also I guess having some sort of distance, as you said, going away, um, seeing things with an outsider's eye, but also sort of being. Yeah, being part of the community, that do you feel like that gave you an in with your subjects? Oh, no doubt about that. Because I, I was I was very into the community, you know. So that that played a huge role. Because I I was known before I went into the military in two different communities, having the opportunity to have lived in Red Hook and then lived in, in Flatbush. I had two strong communities that I knew. So that that definitely was very helpful in, in uh my connecting with young people. And then it was rooted in love. You know, I had a sincere love for young people and it, it resonates through my images. And that was it was important for me to capture that at the same time because I wanted to create counter narratives to a lot of the negativity in which I was seeing in images. And I knew that I had the ability to, 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 to capture those that stood before my camera in a very dignified way. So that was very important. I mean, I explained that to them at the same time. You know, it, it was as I look back at it now, I still can't believe that I was doing the things in which I was doing in terms of approaching complete strangers at that time and convincing them to stand in front of my lens. You know, I often speak about uh, studying body language. You know, it was a book that informed my practices early on by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm -hmm. I read that. I took it very serious. I understood body language. I understood the, the importance of communication and shaking hands. And, and, and again, you know, carrying that portfolio made it easy, too, because that was the language that I used to engage a lot of people. I showed them work and gave them an example of what it is I was trying to do. You know, back then we had a one-hour photo in the area. So I would take photographs in a central area like downtown Brooklyn, get on the train, go to Chinatown, get the work printed in an hour, tell people I would be back in about an hour or two, and come back and give everyone copies of their photographs. And that meant something to me, you know, and to see the joy in their face. Wow, this guy's giving us pictures for nothing. It was from the heart. And it made me feel good to just see how, how good it made them feel that someone took an interest in them, not only to, to capture their photograph, but to give them a copy for free at the same time. And that allowed me to build friendships that, that, that exist to this very day based off that practice. Beautiful. And I mean, you talk about wanting to battle stereotypes and show, I guess, a, a more 
real or truer version of the community that might have been being told on the news or anything like that. That sort of reminds me of, you know, the work of Gordon Parks, who I know is a big inspiration for you. Um, yes. Do you, I, I want to ask you, do you remember when you first saw his work and what his work meant to you and how it sort of informed you and what you ended up doing later on? Yeah, it, It's kind of complicated to say that because when I was young, I used to read the Life magazines and I was looking at the images. At that time, I didn't really have the insight to really give value to a lot of the photographers, but I would see the publications and look at the imagery. So early on, I was looking at photographs that he made of, of, of uh, the Fontanelli family in Harlem, the Nation of Islam, and I just didn't know who he was, but I saw that these were very dynamic photographs, and it just grabbed me. It, it, it introduced me to documentary photography, and at the same time, I'm looking at the, the black community through a different lens. And in, in, even in Life magazine, he tried to to uh, show stories that that were really that, that, again off of that counter narrative. And I was able to pick that up, but I didn't know it was Gordon Parks at that time. It wasn't until later on, and maybe to the early 1980s, that I was introduced to his work through going to, to the library and different bookstores. And it just gave me uh, it, it actually set me on a path because now I'm connecting with another African American African American uh, photographer who was on this journey, because at that time there weren't really any, to my knowledge. So he served as somewhat of a role model to me and one that can do this here. And as time went on, I really studied his various practices and said that everything that Gordon did, I want to do. I want to do documentary, I want to do street, I want to do portraits, I want to do fashion. So he really informed me in that way early on. When I was heavily involved in photography, there was nothing more satisfying than seeing an image I'd created on display in public. But what if you could see your creativity unleashed on a large scale? I'm talking billboard size scale. It's not as far-fetched as it seems. Fine Art America, the world's largest online art marketplace, is giving artists the chance to see their work on a billboard in a major metropolitan area in the United States. All you have to do is enter their 2021 Billboard Art Contest. Anyone can submit up to three images using any medium by August 31st. A panel of judges will pick 20 images to appear on billboards across the U.S. this fall and winter. Best of all, entering the contest is free. How cool is that? To enter the Fine Art America 2021 Billboard Art Contest, Go to fineartamerica.com slash contest. You have until August 31st to submit your artwork. And again, it's free. What are you waiting for? Head over today and you may just see your creativity on a billboard. You know, you mentioned with Gordon Parks, his fashion photography and fashion is something very central to your work. Your photographs have sometimes been called sort of the original street style photography. We think of sites now like the sartorialist and that type of style of imagery. And that's something that you were already doing back in the 80s. Um, yes. Talk a little bit about the importance and role of fashion in your work and also in the community that you were photographing. When I grew up in the 1970s, fashion was always there. Whatever reason, everyone was about really looking, looking their best. So that was just common when I grew up. It wasn't a coincidence. You know, you could walk really any place in Brooklyn back in the days and people took dress. And I found that when, when people dressed that well, they were easy to photograph because they felt good about themselves. So that, that was pretty easy because, you know, and I think that that's what really helped me, especially going in large places like downtown Brooklyn or 42nd Street, because t- people took great pride in how they look. They put creases in their pants. They made sure that their, their colors were coordinated. Their sneakers matched their shirt. Best friends would wear identical clothing. And I just thought that was amazing. And I found that early on, again, through stud- studying body language, that that was something to look for when you approach a person. And I would often compliment people in their dress, and it made them feel good. So uh, 
fashion became something that was an intricate part of my work practices back then. It wasn't key because I was more concerned with the soul of person. But I knew once again that if people really look good about themselves, they'd be more than willing to stand in front of the camera. And as time would progress, you know, I really took to uh, fashion photography. I was greatly inspired by the work of both Gordon Parks and Helmut Newton. I like how they how they use the urban landscape as a backdrop. So when I would, you know, carry, carry in my practices, I did the same thing. So a lot of my basic photo shoots really actually turned into fashion shoots. I love this image of a young woman. She has the phone booth and she is posing the house down against this phone booth. Like it's, <laughs> yes. you know, like she's modeling Dior yeah. with her heels and her bag. Um, and I don't know. I, and she's just staring right into the camera like she's a paid model diva. Yeah. And I just I just love it thinking that these are just people that you encountered on your way. I don't know if there's anything particularly you remember about this photo, but it's one that struck me. It was just short encounters. One of the things my father taught me early on, they really helped my practices all the time. I always had my camera with me. It was out, the top was off, the settings were set, and I understood how light fell on the street. So it was that that's really helped out. So as I walked, I was always observing. And uh, with that particular shot, when I look back at the negative, it really amazed me because, you know, I didn't have a lot of money at that time. So oftentimes, the photo just took one frame, just one image. And, and I just happened to see in the phone booth as I was walking by. I turned around and just got that one frame. And, and normally I have conversations, but it didn't warrant at that time. But I was able to get the image. And, it, you know, so most of my photographs, just walking. I love to walk throughout Brooklyn because it was never a dull moment walking down the streets. And when it was cold or uh, I needed to travel, a lot of my photographs were taking place in the trains. That became my second studio. The lighting was always good and the subject matter was everything that you found above ground, you found below ground. You know, so uh, I, I just had a love for photography. Carried a camera for about 30, 40 years, everywhere I went. You are, you're really photographing at such a critical time when there are so many incredible movements happening. Um, and one of them, one of the great moments happening is the rise of, of hip hop and, and music and yes. I guess in fashion, all mixing with that. Um, what was it like to be that in that environment and see this thing all of a sudden bubbling up? That's that's a very difficult question to answer because you know I, I worked as a correction officer in 1983. The crack epidemic had hit. There was a lot lot of violence in the city at the same time, and the music was setting the tone. You know, uh, hip hop at that time. You know, a lot of artists were speaking about some of the things that were going on. You know, like we had Grandmaster Flash with their great song, The Message. And spoke about some of the trials and tribulations of city life and uh, and, and drugs itself. So it, it was it was a bittersweet time. You know, mm -hmm. there was there was joy on one hand. You know, there was there's a sense of of, of 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 unity. But once the crack hit in in like eighty four eighty five, things start to just change drastically, and the music start to change, the attitudes start to change, the 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 the, the connections that once people had it uh, start to fade away, and there was a division. So mm. it, it was it was very difficult for me because, you know, during that time period, 1983, I was working in the jail. I just started working in a, in a jail environment and I'm seeing the misery. I'm seeing the suffering, you know, and then I'm leaving and I'm photographing in the street. So I'm, I'm conflicted with my feelings right now because I'm feeling the joy in the street that I'm going into a jail environment, you know, oftentimes spending eight to 16 hours a day. You know, so it was very troubling to me, to be honest with you. And I just mm. felt that, you know, I had to be more proactive in the street to talk to people about drugs and incarceration because it was on the rise in addition to, to AIDS. And then, you know, right. uh, during that same time period, the war on drugs. So it was it was a very uh, 
uncertain time period. You know, a lot of people were dying, and um, it was it, it was it was the best way to describe it. Again, is bittersweet. And so, could you have imagined that all these years later, those images would continue to have an impact? Because a lot of the things, a lot of the themes that you bring up as we're talking, you know, there's still things that are happening today. Um, and to see how important your work has been to preserving that time in Black culture. Your work is now in the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, the Whitney, the Bronx Museum of Arts. I mean, you weren't necessarily working as a 100% professional photographer. So I can imagine it, it might be sort of incredible to know that this is, you know, what has become of your work. Yes. Again, I realized early on that the camera was a compass and photography was the language in which I, I, I used during the course of my travels. It started out as simply wanting to have a visual diary, never wanting to be without memory. When I was stationed in Europe, you know, I would often think about New York when I would be out, you know, those cold nights on guard duty. I reflected about just visualizing New York, the subways, the streets. So I promised myself when I was preparing to go home that when I get back to the States, I will never be without memory. And uh, one of the things that I did as well, besides the photography, I, I journaled for about 30, 40 years. So I, I wanted to just have memories of my experience. You know, I would never have imagined that my work would, have, would lead me on the path in which I'm on right now. But I look at it again as it was a part of my assignment in life. This was my purpose to be almost like an alchemist. You know, I was given the task to freeze time in motion for the days that we are living in now, because uh, my work had meaning in, in the 80s. My, my work has always had meaning. But once COVID hit, families start to lose loved ones. In mm -hmm. addition to the fact that we were now on lockdown, I realized that my work served as a form of visual medicine. And in sharing it on my social media feeds, it gave people a lot of joy mm -hmm. to wake up and see old retro images of a place that is no longer existing. Yeah. To see images of people showing each other love. Something as simple as handshakes and hugs and a massless society, it made people feel good. But more importantly, what I found very interesting about my work and its meaning I didn't understand the fullness of what I was doing at that time. I just knew I was freezing time in motion. I was my 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 subconscious mind drew me to certain places for whatever reason. I would see things, I would document it, and and now I would freeze that moment. Now 30, 40 years have passed. Now I thawed out those moments, and now I'm sharing them to a larger world. And now the children are reaching out to me saying, "You have a picture of my mother and my father. Yeah. My father's no yeah. longer here, and you have a picture of my father I've never seen before." And then there's other stories that I've, I've heard early on this year that really amazed me where I posted a photograph, a beautiful photograph of a young woman and a child. Her husband wrote me and said, that's my wife and she died last week of COVID. And that's her sister she's posed with and she died maybe like 15 years ago. And it blew me away that something just told me to put this picture on and come to find out that his wife died. There's another photograph of a father with his two sons, a beautiful picture, and one of the sons has on a shirt, don't worry, be happy. The father's about maybe in his 30s. The two young boys might be 10 and 12. The daughter wrote me, and she said to me that both my father's heart is hurting because both his sons were murdered. Two different time periods. You, you lose one son to murder one year, and you lose another son to another, another year. And here you have this beautiful picture of a father with his two sons, and he's proud. And then one son has a shirt, don't worry, be happy, only to come to find out that both sons were murdered. And she happens to go on my page and she sees his picture. 
and said that it, it, it just broke her father's heart. So I have images that tell stories beyond anything I could ever imagine. And people write me every single day, breaking things down to me on multiple levels. It could be from the fact that you know the person in the picture, it's you, it's your father, it's your brother, or you know, you're looking at the backdrop, the urban landscape, and you can identify with it. So I like the conversations that is conjuring up during this time because, you know, so much of what we know has, has, has changed. New York is a very different city than it once was, and I was able to document that time period and the joy. You know, there was the pain, as I spoke about earlier, but it was the joyous moments that I've documented. And those that can understand it really appreciate it. But what moves me, too, is that the broader world has an appreciation for it. Now I have people from Australia and throughout Europe mm -hmm. and, and Asia who are writing me who have a, an appreciation for the work in which I've done because, again, it's all for the counter-narrative they what they're accustomed to seeing. Yes. You know, what has happened, we have become very heartened in society, and I find that in today a lot of young people don't smile because smiling is a form of, like, weakness for some of them. you got to always have this exterior. So I've captured a time of innocence where you see the smiles and the joy, and I think that serves as a great source of inspiration to young people coming up to give them a counterbalance to all of that, to say it's okay to smile. It's okay to put your arm around your friend and show some joy. So uh, that's the impact that the work is having right now every single day. And that's the motivation that really inspires me to put pictures up every day because I know that at my fingertips, I have the ability to make somebody's heart smile. You speak so eloquently, I guess, about the power of documentary photography and the type of work that you're doing, where it's, of course, about the beautiful visual aesthetic of the imagery, and, and, and they all are beautiful, but just the multiple levels that they can touch people on, I think is so profound and speaks to the depth of, of this, of this art form. And it must be exciting and sort of, yeah, thrilling in the morning when you, you go to put up a photo and you don't know what you're going to get back. It is for a lot of them. It's closure and uh, it, it's painful. I'd say this, it's been a lot of conversations and a lot of tears, you know, beyond anything I could ever imagine. Uh, just early this year, I posted a picture that was all right to me. You know, it was just a basic, what I call a snapshot of a mother and her son. And I said, let me just share this to try to, you know, find out, you know, just just put it out there. You just never know. And to my amazement, the son reached out to me and and he was in pain. He was angry at first because he had no memory of the photograph. He might have been about 10 years old in the photograph. He's holding his mother real tight. And he would go on to tell me, you know, the story behind that picture that, that was unbelievable. He says, I was arrested for a minor traffic violation and taken into a, 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 a precinct by the police. And I called my mother up to come get the car. And she came to get the car. And when she returned back home, her ex-boyfriend assassinated her in the presence of his little brother. And he just started crying. And that picture took him back to that moment. And he's a grown man now. And he cried and cried and cried. And I shared the second picture with him. Because maybe he didn't have any photographs with his mother. And I would have never imagined in my life that this young boy, this beautiful young boy who's holding his mother real tight, how that picture would impact him in that way. And you can only imagine the shock that he felt when he saw it on social media because he had no knowledge of it. And now you see, not only do you see a picture with your mother who really took care of you and you holding her real tight, like don't go away, find out years later that she was murdered and you feel a sense of responsibility because you called her up to come get the car. And when she came back with the car, she was murdered. So I get stories like that all the time. But then there's the other sides of the stories of, of the couple I shot when they were 17-year-old kids in high school that have been married now for 40 years. 
And that makes me feel good, you know, that and I get that all the time, too, because, you know, I focus on couples a lot. And it's good to hear those stories, how people have been uh, high school sweethearts. And to this day, now in their 50s and 60s, they are still together. So those are the stories that really warm my heart that I like to share as well. I want to talk about a couple of exciting projects you have going on at the moment. I know you have an exhibition, uh, Prospect Park, My Oasis in Brooklyn. That's going to be on display outside Lefferts Historic House in Prospect Park through December 1st of 2021. So people have plenty of time to go and view it. Can you tell us a bit about the show and what Prospect Park meant to you? Oh, Prospect Park is everything. I, I, I call it my oasis in Brooklyn because that was always my escape from the concrete of the street, the hardness of city life. Prospect Park is 583 acres in Brooklyn. And it has beautiful lakes and hills and uh, uh, wildlife. And it's a space where I've always was able to find joy and inner peace. So when I came home in, in 80, uh, Prosper Park became that space where I actually really learned a lot of different aspects of photography. So when I got young models, I brought them to the park. I, got, I was able to do documentary photography in the park. I was able to do portraits in the park. It was that perfect space to really develop my craft as a photographer. A lot of friendships were born in that park. Even with, with those that I courted, I always brought them to that park. It was tradition over the many years. And even with young people who lived within the inner city, I introduced them to that park as that sanctuary to go to, to escape from the concrete. So it's it's very dear to my heart. The the show that's up right now is, is, is vast because it shows various aspects of my work, from the portraiture, the documentary photography, uh, it's all there. The landscapes, and uh, it, it's a very important body of work. It's probably one of my largest themes ever. I've shot a lot of Brooklyn over time, but Prospect Park is that space that I can honestly say that I've been photographing for well over 41 years. And what, what moves me most about that work is the diversity. It's not limited to one particular community. I've documented all of the communities and the coaches that coexist within that park. And I'm very happy for the Prospect Park Association in alliance with Photoville that really you know, helped to bring this, this exhibition into fruition. And I'll be doing a series of walking tours to explain my process in the, in the coming months. So that project is extremely close to my heart. Incredible. Well, it's good that it's going to be up for a long time. So people have the opportunity to go by and hopefully if they can take one of the walking tours with you, because that would be even more incredible. Yes. Now I know you're also your iconic book. You've done several books, but one of your most iconic books, a time before crack is being republished, which is great news. Um, how did that come about and how can people get that book? Thank you for bringing that up. A Time Before Crack is a book I felt the need to revisit because when I first did it, it was my attempt to address the crack epidemic. The crack epidemic not only devastated cities here in, in New York, but throughout America and even some of the, uh, many other places, you know, the Caribbean. And I was really bothered behind that, what the post-crack era looked like. It caused a, a, a major transformation amongst people, amongst communities. And I wanted to rewind back a little bit before the crack epidemic hit. I wanted to show friendships. I wanted to show joy. I wanted to show community. And the first book did that visually, but the writers did not really articulate what I wanted to be said. <clears throat> Many of them spoke about me. I wasn't able at that time to get writers to speak about the epidemic. I wanted writers to speak about the war in Vietnam and the heroin epidemic. And even... Uh, just the love and unity in the music of the 1970s and 80s. But unfortunately, I rushed that book and that element wasn't there, even mm -hmm. though the first edition is still a good book. 
but I decided to revisit it with people that were directly impacted by the crack epidemic. So I reached out to a number of my associates, you know, and, uh, and, and to, to lend their voices to create text. I'm having more images in the book now that are really uh, directly linked to the crack epidemic as well. So I'm very grateful that Powerhouse has agreed to not only do, the, do a revised issue of the book, but to allow me to add new text and to new Im uh, lend new images. And for me, again, it's a form of visual medicine that I feel that we need right now. Mm. It's one thing to do a fun book that people can look at and reminisce about the style and the posing. I wanted to provoke thought. And I wanted to deal with this crack epidemic because I was a witness to it early on. I've lost a lot of people to it on a number of levels, those mm -hmm. that used it and those that sold it. And uh, so with this book here, I have a, uh, I have a former district attorney who's going to write the introduction. Oh, wow. An incredible and highly intelligent young man by the name of Ken Montgomery, who was both a, a district attorney and, and a, um, a public defender. I have a, a, a former homicide detective who's going to speak about what he witnessed as a detective in, in his city. I have uh, two former young people that fell victim to crack speaking about their particular journey. So the essays I think are phenomenal. I put a call out on my social media feed and I'm really amazed with the number of people who have reached out to me with stories to be told. So I'm going to try to pack this book with, with short stories and poems, you know, from different perspectives to give greater light because I want others to just share what they felt because crack really devastated the families and created a lot of the problems that we have today. So I'm trying to use this book as a form of visual medicine to help heal people. You know, I had a young woman write me based off seeing her picture on my Instagram feed and what she wrote is incredible and I would have never imagined. I have this beautiful photograph of a young woman with her mate and with their young child and she wrote me that maybe shortly after that picture was taken, maybe two, three years later, her and her mate fell victim heavily to crack. Mm. So that picture brought up a lot of pain. Sure. And luckily her daughter was able to survive and become uh, 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 a, pr a principal in one of the high schools here in New York City. But she went through struggle and I wanted her to write about that experience. So she is. So there's a lot of pain and recovery. So uh, I'm really excited behind this book. Hopefully it will come out in the fall. Uh, I have a new cover and every single picture has a story. Even with the picture, and uh, the, the, the new image on a book, it's really profound because it's one of my most iconic photographs. I call it Rude Boy. Yes. It's a single portrait of a guy with the two-piece suit on. Yes. A good friend of mine who lived around a corner. He was a highly intelligent young man with a lot of promise. He was murdered by someone mm -hmm. who was addicted to crack, and nobody knows that. So this book gives me an, an opportunity to tell more stories. Every single photograph has great meaning to it. And I think that this book, A Time Before Crack, the revised issue, will probably be one of my most important books ever. Well, it sounds extremely exciting. I want to get it right now, even though it's not <laughs> okay. ready. We'll make sure that uh, we include information for our listeners on where to get it and when it will be available and, and everything like that. Okay, um, thank you. So important, the work that you're doing. Real quickly, we just have a couple audience questions. The first question from our listeners is, New York has changed immensely over the years, and you were there just before the AIDS epidemic hit. How does it compare to how the city has changed during the COVID-19 pandemic? I have to be honest. I'm, I'm very heartbroken with what I'm seeing now because what COVID did, you know, a lot of people passed away. So families uh, were decimated. You know, a lot of times the elder of that family, the breadwinner would pass away. People lost their jobs. So in the city now, there's a great degree of despair, homelessness, mental illness, a lot of the mental health facilities closed during the past few years. 
So now you have a lot of mentally ill people in the street. You have a lot of homelessness now because people lost their home. Right. And it's really sad to see the city in that state right now. Of course, we've had a number of police protests. So it's a divide. Um, and it, it's, it's very painful for me to see now to the point where I don't go out that much. Mm-hmm. And I rely heavily on my memory of how things were before sure. because I don't really like what I'm seeing now. And not to say that it's all that bad. But it's just observations which I'm making right now, even to the point of having to wear a mask and social distancing. It's a frequency that's very uncomfortable for me right now because I'm accustomed to seeing someone's face, the expression. I'm accustomed to shaking your hand and embracing you and to know now that there's this apprehensiveness, you know, and the fact that people wear masks. It's very it's very difficult for me. It's painful to experience because I, I, I have not made that adjustment and I can. And I eventually will. But right now, I have to take a pause and, and just ref- just reminisce a little bit about how things were before. Definitely. Our next question comes from Sophia. And she's curious to know, how do you think street photography has changed during the smartphone era that we're living in? I mean, you talked about how one shot and you were lucky that you got it. Obviously, with the, with the phone or digital, it's, it's very different now. What I appreciate about what I'm seeing today is uh, we have a number of things. You know, the technology has advanced. When I was coming up, if you saw a person with a camera, he was out of either a tourist or he was a professional photographer. It wasn't a lot of people embracing the craft at that time. Now, due to smartphones, everyone has the capability of not only making images, but making videos now. And they have to develop a love for it. They see beauty now and they are utilizing their third eye like never before. And they're using the various devices they have from, from traditional cameras to, to cell phone cameras. And I'm really impressed with what I'm seeing. And what has happened is produced a generation of so many photographers now. There's so many young people that are embracing it as a craft. Back in the days, you didn't hear people grow up and say, I want to be a photographer. But now, some might start out with the smartphone and see the beauty of photography. And then they will elevate and take it to the next level by getting a more classic camera. Right. And I'm seeing that now. So I appreciate the fact that so many photography has now become that that craft that so many people around the globe are embracing. And I really appreciate that. You know, uh, I don't I don't care if it's a point and shoot. The main thing is to get the image, to document that moment. You know, and that's very important. And work on different things, which they are doing. You know, so I'm seeing incredible work from from all ages. And, and, and I'm really happy with seeing that right now. The, the people develop this, this love for this global language. And at the same time, they're using it to connect to a larger world yes. through Instagram now. So you could post a picture, you could tag it properly, and now you're having conversations around the globe. So again, going back to that language that it has created and the friendships that it's created, that's a really beautiful thing right now. Yeah, certainly it brings us together in, in a way that we never could have imagined. I mean, you've spoken about how it's really helped you discover all these new sides to your, to your own work. So this season on the Top Artist Podcast, we're, our theme is impact. Um, we've talked a lot about the impact that your work has had over your, your career. Um, one thing we're asking all of our artists this season is, what impact do you hope that your work will have? That's a great question. My, my hope, is, it's a couple of things. My hope is that I could use my work in this day and time of uncertainty to bring joy in the world. That would mean a lot to me. If my images could make people feel good, you know, during a time of depression, you know, to just put a little bit of joy and hope in, in one's heart, that means a lot to me. And second, it is my desire that, 
you know, my work will inspire the next generation of visual artists. Just like I was inspired by Gordon Parks and Leonard Freed, it is my hope that people look at my work and say, I want to do photography like that. So if I could uh, inspire the next generation of image makers, that would mean the world to me. Incredible. Jamel, it has been so wonderful speaking with you today about your work and your career. We could speak for another hour, I'm sure, and hopefully we'll have you back again to to discuss things even further. Can you share with people how can they find your work if they want to follow everything you have going on? The, the very best place right now, I, I really like Instagram. So in, my Instagram feed is the very best place. I do have a website. It needs to be upgraded right now. So it's all right. I haven't been on it in years. I don't even know what it looks like, but it still gives you a gauge into <laughs> yeah. my creative process. But my Instagram feed is really the place because I do post every day and um, it, it's a reflection of my heart and soul. So that's the best place. You just go add Jamel Shabazz and that's just the place to be right now. But I thank you so much for your, your patience and understanding and even having an interest in having this conversation. It's these type of talks that are very therapeutic for me and, uh, and it just feels good. So I, I applaud you, you and your team for all the great work that you are doing. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for being with us. Well, that's it for the My Modern Met Top Artist podcast. We hope you enjoyed our interview with documentary photographer Jamel Shabazz and learning about how he used his camera to make an impact in his community. We actually chatted with him about more topics that we didn't have time to include in the episode. Pop over to our Instagram at Top Artist Podcast to hear more stories from Jamel in the coming days. Don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode or go over to podcast.mymodernmet.com and sign up for our newsletter so that you'll get a reminder when new episodes are published and receive more information on our upcoming guests. We'll see you in two weeks when Sarah Barnes will be here interviewing American fiber artist Bisa Butler, who is known for her quilted portraits that celebrate black life. In the meantime, pop over to mymodernmet.com for your daily fix of art and culture. See you next time.